0: Hey, Jason. Spencer here. I don't know about 50 years of D&D, but what about 600 episodes of Nerds RPG Variety Cast? huh? When did that happen? No wonder you need to take some time off. And don't think I haven't noticed that you haven't taken any time off yet. Yeah, what an achievement. That is incredible. And congratulations. I still believe you're the hardest working man in podcasting. I've got to echo your thoughts on VTTs. Not a big fan of them at all, like you, I'm a laptop guy, just one screen, and uh, I find it hard enough keeping track of that. The only time I use Roll20 is when we're playing Call of Cthulhu, and that's just for figuring out the dice rolls and world handouts. Obviously, you might get the odd floor plan thrown up, but we're not pushing tokens around it or anything like that. So, yeah, theory of the mind all the way. And um, that game, Visceral. I'm surprised you said some people might be put off by the description of the system because, I don't know, it just sounded really interesting to me. And I'll be checking that out as soon as I'm done leaving this message. Anyway, again, congratulations on 600, <laughs> almost said 600 years, 600 episodes of Nerds RPG Variety Cast. And, well, you can keep them coming as long as you like, because I'm always going to be here listening. Take care.
1: What well, pockets of a beer or a cold libation? Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from Brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said, I'll start off with some talking, and some movie clips, some popcorn, fighting fantasy explorations, and some groundness exploitation, kickstarts that I'm watching, and some blind unboxings, full month or movie marathon, sometimes I'll let the dogs go on, Contest and the portion, you know it's all about games, that's slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG
2: Variety Okay.
1: With the other Jason. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. There at the top of the show was Spencer, also known as Free Thrall of Keep Off the Borderland. Thank you so much for those kind words. Spencer has taken over the monthly Monday Movie Night and just published the episode for Time Bandits. Go over there and listen to it. There's a link in the show notes. The movie for February is going to be Dragon Slayer. So go rewatch Dragon Slayer. It's free on Pluto TV here in the States. And call Spencer or send an email to Spencer or reach out however you can and let Spencer know your thoughts on Dragon Slayer. And if you missed out on sending a message in for uh, Time Bandits, then you can still do that as well. So get those over to Spencer, and I want to thank Spencer again for picking up the torch on Monday Movie Night. I love the fact that we are able to transition from one podcast to another and keep a good number of people participating. And I think that says something about us as a community. And I'm very proud of that. Really quickly, I want to answer Spencer's question. When did that happen? Well, actually, I hit 600 episodes on the 3rd of December, 2023, with episode, I think, 582. I have a few early episodes that aren't numbered or, or, like, numbered as a half episode or something, so I'm actually, at, I think this is episode 618, actually, but, you know, who's counting? Anyhow, thank you for that, appreciate it. I, I'm not so much worried about the numbers, but I do appreciate the kind words. As for visceral, I think that the thing that might turn people off maybe you know, it leans into, like, we're ultra-violent and we're this and that, and the setting or there's another little document that they sell there on HIO that's kind of like, well, it's not quite the purge, but it's you're kidnapped by a cult. Now you're hunting down the cult or something, which I did buy. And and I'm going to support this creator because I like the visceral system, but I could see some people being turned off by that vibe and that aesthetic. I do think the rule set though, doesn't have to be played as ultra violent. You know, I'm doing air quotes there. And I think it, is pretty well suited to a buddy cop game. And hopefully in the next month or two, I'll get a couple players together and we'll test that theory out. Thank you again for that call, Spencer. I really appreciate it. I have a belated uh, memorial to, to mention. A couple, actually. I've record- been recording podcasts in advance and I haven't done special episodes for some of the people who've passed away recently that I really should have. Janelle J. Quay's Comes to mind, super influential designer in the RPG and even computer game community. Somebody that we all, all of us that play the game, owe a debt to. And it, it's a huge loss to everybody. Uh, another person that's recently passed, I is James Herbert Brennan. I've talked about a couple of Brennan's games on the show, Time Ship, and the the other game was Man, Myth, and Magic. So there have been some, like I say, I've been recording episodes in advance and I haven't really gone back and thrown in some of the, these immemorial things. But the reason I'm mentioning Janelle especially is that a small controversy has come up. Well, it's not small, but it's in a corner of the internet, which I typically don't get on social media, a controversy has come up that involves Janelle and Justin Alexander and this is not to damn anybody. It's not to say, you know, I'm not, I, I just want to throw this out there really quickly and I'm going to move past it and we're going to get on with the show. But I think it's important to say that jayquasing the dungeon, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is the correct term to use. Uh, there, there have been some controversy back in like 2010, Justin Alexander term that, use the term Jake the dungeon for the kind of style of dungeon that Janelle had designed. And there was over the course of like the next 12 years or so in a year later, Janelle came out, did a name change and he wouldn't change her name, you know, on his website, which isn't a big deal to do, honestly, changing a name on a website. But then finally, before his book came out, he switched from using the term Jay Quaying the dungeon to Xandering the dungeon after himself, um, probably at his lawyer's request. So, up to that time, she had been asking him to add the S at the end of her name to make it Jay Quaizing the dungeon because her name has an S on it, her last name, and she wants that used. And he never did it. And then he changed it name after himself. And again, we think probably because lawyers told him to. He made it seem like. That was something that he decided with Janelle, and it's come out that it was probably something he decided with his lawyers. But re- regardless of that, the the point is there had been some controversy whether, you know, that was really what happened. And uh, the blogspot DIY and Dragons came out with a pretty scathing review of the whole thing. And Justin Alexander came out and said The post is lying and it's not what Janelle said. It's not what Janelle's wife said that I'm quoting Justin Alexander there. And then Janelle's spouse, Rebecca, posted saying it will forever be known as Jay Quasing a dungeon. I've spoken. So I honestly don't care about Justin Alexander's lawyers. It ultimately, Rebecca, Janelle's spouse had said the intent was for it to be called J Quasing a dungeon, that style of dungeon design. And that's the respectful thing to use. So I just wanted to throw that out there. This isn't to, like I say, I'm not trying to demonize Alexander or anything like that. But my point is, if you go out and pick up his new book, or you see people talk about his new book, and you're going to see the term "Xandering a dungeon with an X in the front, really that the, the correct term is Jack a dungeon. That's what the creator of that kind of dungeon wanted used, Janelle wanted used. It's what Rebecca Janelle's spouse once used. So it's the respectful thing to use and ultimately, you know, it really doesn't matter what Justin wants because uh, I'm going to honor the person that came up with the concept and and popularized the concept through so many great dungeons and I'm going to honor the wishes of Janelle's spouse because that's the respectful thing to do. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't have anything else to say on that if you want to talk about this more if you want to defend the terms handering or you you want to do whatever with this there are tons of social media outlets you can do that on there are discords you can do that on there are other podcasts you can do that on i'm not going to play any calls regarding this um, i am done with this topic <laughs> it's a it's a done deal it's Jake Wazing the dungeon period so i won't be talking about this anymore but i felt i needed to get it out there and say it. it though, although I will say this, if down the road somebody comes up and they're new to gaming and they picked up the the book from Justin Alexander and they're using the term "xandering a Dungeon, they probably don't know any better. It doesn't mean that they're a bigot. It doesn't mean that they're transphobic. It probably just means they don't know any better. So I would definitely 100% not think that somebody using that term is intentionally trying to um, uh, you know, erase somebody or do anything like that. I don't think that's the case at all, but I do think that it's important maybe to, I, I don't even know that you have to correct them, to be honest, because you know what they're talking about, but yeah, Jay Quasing the dungeon though, is the, the proper and respectful term. And I, <laughs> I hope I'm saying it right. Um, but anyhow, that, that's all I have to say on the topic. So I'm going to shut up now, and we're going to turn it over. I've got some great, great calls coming up, um, a bunch of calls on the rule of cool, and I'm looking forward to playing these. So sit back and enjoy the 600th episode of Nerds RPG Varietycast.
2: Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? on the phone who's on the phone well maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse but the
3: operator screaming is coming from inside
1: the house i actually have a few other calls before we get to the rule cool calls so we're going to knock those out i'd say knock those out these are just as good as those calls in their own way we're going to start off with a call from Daniel, the Bandits Keep Media Empire, about my blog. You can find a link for the blog in the show notes. In the blog, I'm using Dungeon Crawl Classics to run through TSR's AC3. Hey,
4: Jason. Daniel from Bandits Keep calling in about your blog entry. So until comments can be placed there, and even after maybe, I will continue to call in about them. <laughs> so it's interesting, right, because... It seems like that supplement that you're using was designed to, to have you use the terrain, right? And it de- does definitely feel like it wants you to go in the front door. You kind of mentioned this before. And I think that's really interesting, because what do you do? I mean, what do you do? I remember a few years back, I was playing in a game run by one of my players, and they had this whole elaborate thing. It was very similar to that. Somebody was captured, and I was playing a thief. And they, they thought we were going to go on the front. I mean, it was they had planned on us going through the front door. Like, they had a whole encounter set up. They, they knew what the guards were. They knew whatever. And the tower was like on this cliff face of the sea. And I thought to myself, well, if a tower is on the cliff face of the sea, it's probably looking out to the sea, right? Wouldn't it have like a post so people would look? So I said, my character's going to kind of use my thief skill because I was a thief and uh, use that really high climb skill, which is the skill that thieves have. And I'm going to climb out there and see if I see anything. And they looked at their maps and they were like, yeah, there's a a window on like the third floor. But, you know, if you fall, like you're basically going to die because effectively, you know, you're dropping three floors plus (laughs) the cliff. And, you know, with my 87% or whatever, I thought, hey, I'm going for it. So I did it and I climbed up there. And sure enough, because they went by what was in the, the adventure and not they wanted to change something to thwart my plan. I climbed up. The princess was there. She was locked in a room. The guard was on the outside of the room. So I, you know, made some rolls, kind of convinced her very quietly to sneak out, set up a rope, hung it down. Other player characters basically helped her, and we effectively took her. And I thought to myself, okay, we're gonna get chased. Like, there's something going on here. But clearly they hadn't prepared for somebody to do that. I don't mean just the GM, but like the module, the idea of it, the, the the bad guys. So we literally got on our horses and rode away. And what was supposed to be like a four hour adventure with a bunch of combat encounters ended up being an hour or so, and we got away. And we even said, well, listen, we're playing. Do we will go back and just fight them because whatever. And they were like, no, no, you got it. So I think it's interesting, the idea of climbing up. I don't think that would ever not be a thing. You know, I think that is the way that you get into stuff in D&D. Like, the idea of not going through the front door is the way that I think and the way that I, my players think. They almost never go in the front door. So I think it's fascinating that certain modules seem to expect that you will and seem to not have a way to stop you if you want to, right? I mean, I guess there could be a way, like, for instance, Palace of Silver Princess, at least the green edition, you know, there's like a bubble around the palace, if I'm not mistaken, you can only go in the one way. Like it's the ultimate in railroad because it's designed to like teach very specifically. So I wonder if that's kind of what this was too, because it's uh, aimed at the uh, regular D&D, not advanced D&D. Maybe it was aimed at new players. Anyways, I'm super excited to see what happens, if they can get to the top of the building, if they can get in that way. And uh, yeah, I look forward to reading more stuff on your blog and obviously also the podcast. I don't have much to call in for about the podcast this week as I was on it. <laughs> Anyways, I'll talk to you soon. Daniel,
1: thank you for those thoughts. You know, AC3 is interesting because it's written for both Dungeons and & Dragons and Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Notice I didn't say basic Dungeons & Dragons, although that's what we all think of. <laughs> but it's written for both Me and Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, so it's kind of interesting in that regard. But... Yeah, I definitely would run this. I talk about... This actually comes to a head in the blog post that'll come out this Friday. The... Was it the 2nd of February? And I would... Ha- I talk about it on the blog post, but I would handle it differently if I was running a group as opposed to running a solo play. Um, but this does give reasons that you shouldn't use the second story. And, and all that'll be revealed, of course, on the blog post. But... I'm having a lot of fun with the blog, really enjoyable. If I get a TPK with this, I'm kind of doing the funnel thing, and these characters are a little in above over their head. So right now, it's just a question of if they find the magic weapons before they find the monsters that can only be hit by the magic weapons. (laughs) Um, But if there's a TPK, I might take a break. I might do the Gygax 75 challenge that Rayotis popularized and, and did the booklet for. i I may do that and then pick up another solo venture. I don't know. But um, either way, I may keep logging every week. So we'll see. Thank you so much for that call. And now we're going
4: to go to another call from Daniel. Hey, Jason. Daniel calling in about a couple things. Arrows, number one. We'll start there. So, yes, I have had arrows run out as a player. I've also had many times my players run out of arrows during the game. Like you said – it, or inferred that it could be, maybe it didn't happen to you, but that it would be more likely to happen, and it is more likely to happen when they're like in the wilderness, right? If you do a, we're in town, we go out and hunt in the woods for three days, I don't even make them role play; they bomb our arrows, they just reset them when they get back to town, it's not a big deal. But when you're in a dungeon for multiple days, or you're traveling three weeks through the wilderness, yeah, that's when you run out of arrows, so much like your experience uh, in Reaver. Uh, Hyperborea, it probably happened to us the most, because they did a lot of traveling in that game. And also, there was just the opportunity to shoot more arrows because, you know, certain people had specialization with bows or they did things like setting arrows, which allowed them to shoot extra stuff like that. So, you know, when you're shooting three arrows around, you know, and you're only carrying a couple dozen arrows or whatever, you go through them pretty quickly if you get into, you know, a handful of combats. Of course, there's also recovery of arrows and stuff like that that you can do. So... Again, you shouldn't run out of them that much. It just kind of comes down to how you play the game. But I I, I say just like rations, right? It's like I don't care about rations when you're going into a dungeon for two days and coming back. But when you're taking a three-week trek, that's when we worry about that stuff. So for me, I would say, yeah, I mean, who cares if you're playing a one-shot or a short session and you don't think you're going to burn through more than 20 arrows. If you feel like you don't need your players to count arrows, you know, whatever. I don't think that's a big deal. I'm quite sure some of my players don't count the arrows, even though I tell them to. I mean, who knows? I always count my arrows. In fact, I remember when I got back into playing, I sat down to play in my campaign. Uh, that I was the first campaign I played in as a player. And the DM straight up said, I don't worry about encumbrance or counting arrows. And guess what? I still counted all my arrows. I never bothered them after but after once or twice being in town going, I want to buy some arrows. And they just kind of glared at me. So I just after that, I just reset my arrows back in town. And as I say, that's how I generally do it for my players. I don't worry about the small stuff. Also, it's level dependent, you know. At a certain point, like in my OD&D game, they're seventh, eighth level. They have a bunch of non-combatant followers. I assume they're carrying plenty of stuff. I don't worry about that. Much like you talked about before with AD&D, OD&D has that base, like, cost of living, and I factor in, like, replacement of small expendables like that and rations. Okay, that was the first part.
1: I'm going to break in here just to answer this. Yeah, I think our experiences are pretty similar, although I didn't mean to suggest that you shouldn't track arrows, just I find it interesting that we, we do track arrows, and, and I enjoy doing stuff like that as well, but it is rare that you run out of arrows if you're just doing a delve, you know, you're going from town into the dungeon and then coming back, it, it's pretty rare, but it, you know, cat and is a big thing. I think you're more likely to run out of light sources, honestly, to, than you are arrows in most cases. But because really, depending on how you play it, but with AD&D, short of you surprising the enemy and during the surprise segments, or you setting up an ambush, something like that, you're not shooting arrows that often. Because once you've engaged in melee, you're probably not shooting arrows because you don't want to take the chance of hitting your own people. So because it's not because you don't get to pick targets in AD&D if you're shooting at a group. So anyway, let's go on to the rest. of Daniel's call. Second
4: part was. Huh. I figured what the second part was. I do not know. So I guess that's it. So it was only one part, even though I got you excited for a second part. Let's hope that, oh, I know what it was. To Joe's question. So I I know that you said you don't remember how long it took you, but it made me think to myself, (laughs) because I actually did think this when I was reading it. And I don't know if this is somewhat what Joe was thinking as well and, and why he asked, but... I was wondering when you do your actual play, was what you put on the blog your full session? Like did you sit down and play for whatever amount of time and then that's what you blogged about? Or do you play for, you know, as much time as you feel like playing for and then, you know, making notes, then look at your notes and go, okay, that's one blog post, that's two blog posts, that's three blog posts. I'm just more curious than anything else. Uh, You don't have to reveal it if you don't want to, Uh, but I know like in my actual play, that's what I do. Like when I sit down and play and they're delving the dungeon, it might be three, four videos, but I pretty much play that out in one session. It's pretty rare. Sometimes I do the traveling in a different section, session, like to the dungeon, then I'll stop if I'm you know, doing a bunch of stuff at once. But generally speaking, that's what I'll do. I'll play for like an hour and a half, two hours, and then I'll break it up into 30 minute chunks to make it a little bit easier for people to consume. So I'm wondering if you're doing that and if that at all is what Joe was thinking as well, because <laughs> I'm just curious. Um, or if you left yourself on a on a cliffhanger, <laughs> anyways, enjoying the blog, enjoying the podcast, as always. I'll talk to you soon,
1: Daniel. Thank you for that. Yeah, I am breaking it up. I'm. It depends. Like this one coming out Friday was actually one session, but some of the previous ones I I did play and I said, well, I'll break it off here. And um, I'm still kind of feeling out what length a good blog post is. And how much I want to put there. And I'm trying to end kind of at good points or cliffhangers. So I am, you know, depending on what's happening. Initially, I I played a bunch and I broke it up into discrete segments for, or, you know, um, discrete posts. This last one, because I life caught up and <laughs> I kind of got behind, is just one. I sat down, I wrote it, and I finished up. And the next one, well, I'm not sure because I haven't done it yet because I'm behind again. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see, but I'm pretty new to this. I mean, you know, there's only a, a, hand, I, you know, the blog only started at the beginning of the year, so I'm, I'm still feeling the process out. Thank you for that. Really appreciate it. Next up is Minion, also known as Rob from Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy.
5: Hey, Jason. I'm a little bit uh, behind, as you know, and, but I did listen to a couple of your episodes, uh, more recent episodes. One of them that caught my eye was on the Rules Cyclopedia, which is, of course, just a fantastic resource uh, in spite of any uh, errors or issues that it might have. Um, oh, I'm not gonna go into here. Uh, it's brilliant. But uh, yeah, the, the uh, domain game, excellent question from, from our Joe Richter of uh, Hindsightless podcast. Um, always picking up things. Um, Always well, in for a little bit of a fight as well sometimes, but I think that's a that's probably a good thing. Um, one of the people that listens to mine and I think your podcasts, a guy who is usually going under the name of um, is it JB? I think it's JB, it's JB. I, I can't say his real name because I, I think he prefers JB for for this. But um, he he was saying that we tend to kind of compliment and 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 agree with each other a little bit too much Um, and to that I would point him in the direction of our Joe because Joe is a nice guy but he's also quite willing to to pick up points of, um, well pick points out in in issues that we don't see any problem because we're all reading from a similar perspective but which he sees as being actually full of um, not necessarily contradictions, but um, potentially have you know has many different perspectives that people can um, come at it from, and he he often teases those perspectives out, right?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I do think we tend to be pretty nice people in the former anchorverse, so we do tend to kind of agree with each other. A lot of us play games together, so we have similar styles in some ways, but we definitely don't totally agree. I, but I think JB. Your caller has a point that there's not a a whole lot of hard disagreement. There is. I think we disagree more on the Discord. I I think we try to be more polite and more of a unified front on our podcasts and on the Discords where you see the, the big arguments flare up. Not arguments, but disagreements, I should say, over these things. Um, we could start doing podcasts that are more adversarial, I guess, you know, side versus side, those kind of things. Each taken a viewpoint, but I think it just speaks more to that. This is a community of, of like play styles in a l- large degree and, and fairly nice people that are trying to be positive instead of being negative. I, I think there's enough negativity. If you want to see somebody that totally disagrees with something, just go to YouTube or, or maybe some of the social medias and you'll find all that. Um, but th- there's nothing wrong with disagreeing with something respectfully and presenting your case respectfully. So, I I don't mean to say that there shouldn't be opposing viewpoints. I think opposing views are 100% welcome as, as long as we're respectful to each other. Let's go to the rest of Minion's call.
5: Yeah, XP is what I called in, XP for domain play. Uh, I was going to call in and I'll listen to the co- the responses about that and yeah, yeah you, you can there's a lot million ways you can do this right um, and it's not even restricted to what is in the book obviously um but i had never done domain play ever to be honest not to anything like that level um but if you're going to do it yeah you'd have to you know you'd have to just take it from, tackle it from a completely different perspective i suspect Um, those running a domain, the adventures would be largely um, much more political. There'd be large-scale wars. There would be cases where the the players do get called to go back on adventures. You know, know, uh, how would you run that, right? Would you do it like every five sessions they go out in the field, every ten sessions? Um, Would you run... Other characters um, as retainers or you know, new player characters that are working under their Aegis is that the right word? Uh, under their um, not necessarily employment, but from a similar perspective, um, how would you manage that? How would you stop the players giving you know really nice items to their new characters? Um, well, right, so the whole number of questions there which aren't going to be answered in the rule book and. You've really got to deal with it when you get it to the table. So I don't really have any experience with that, so I'm not the one to ask. But I think there's a great framework there. Is it perfect? Definitely not. Um, And once you start playing it, you probably find a lot of holes in it as well. But it is what it is, and I think uh, for its time, it was certainly well ahead of the curve. Um, And I'd be keen on actually doing running a campaign like that I'm not sure if that's really realistic, or it's going to. something we'll come at in the in the future. We'll see. Anyway, uh, kind of a rambly one. I'm a bit tired. I'm not drunk. I'm just a wee bit tired. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for continuing to put out great episodes and uh, li- listen to. I look forward to listening to you and your podcast very soon. All right, take care now.
1: Some great thoughts there. Yeah, you know, I've never run a high-level domain play either. I mean, as kids, we didn't really delve into the details of it. And as an adult, I've only played in one-shots or short campaigns of high-level characters. So I've never really done a true domain-level play for a long period. So I don't have any, any real experience that either. Um, although it is something that would be interesting to do at some point. Okay, our next caller can be heard on the Classic Adventure Gaming Podcast... This is EOTB, you will see them on various places, on discords, and on some of the old school forums, and on the most recent episode of Phantom Thoughts. If you go over to Phantom Thoughts, there is a great call, or maybe series of calls, from EOTB into the Pink Phantom on some really interesting topics, talking about how to use the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons player's handbook and DMG together and on pummeling and how we've been reading pummeling wrong all these years. He, that's my those are my words, not EOTB's, but looking back at it, you know, I definitely see what EOTB is saying on the pummeling rules, but for that discussion you need to go over to Phantom Thoughts. There's a link in the show notes, but I'm going to turn it over to EOTB who listened to a recent episode and has some thoughts on what
6: we said. Hey, Jason, this is uh, EOTB calling. There were a couple of, of items in your last podcast. on uh, the 50th anniversary one that piqued my interest, the thieves skills and also uh, the training. So thieves skills, at least in AD&D, uh, not hitting your role does not mean that you failed. Um, it just means that you default back to the chance for anybody. So, for instance, if you have an urban chase, right, uh, anybody could run around a corner and see a, see a shadowy alcove or, or something, try and duck into it. If nobody thinks to look for them there, they won't be seen. If somebody thinks that they might be there and goes looking, they will be seen. But if you're a thief, you could make a hide and shadows check that would defeat even that active search. Um, another A couple of other examples of thief-only skills, uh, setting traps and pickpockets. So pickpockets, if you fail your role, you're not automatically caught. It just says that you might be. And they eventually settled on a system where um, it was – Three times the level of the person that you were trying to pickpocket. So if you're pickpocking a normal guy, the only way you're caught is if you rolled a 98 to a 100. If you were pickpocketing a 10th level guy, you were caught on 71 to 100. <clears throat> and in theory, you could, you could be caught and succeed at the same time. But simply failing the roll did not mean that you were caught. Uh, setting traps, uh, another thief only skill. So there, if you failed to set the trap, then your chance was the opposite But it was only on a second roll. So if you had a twenty five percent chance to set the trap and you failed it, it was not that the trap injured you right away, but you would roll again with a seventy-five percent chance to be hurt. So people who are just saying, Oh, if you if you failed your role, then you know the opposite of what you wanted to happen happens, definitely doing a disservice to the thief, at least under A D and D rules. other rule sets may say different things. On the training, um yeah, Gygax definitely had a specific way that he thought the game should be played. But he also said that outside of certain pillars of the game, uh, you are free to change this to whatever makes most sense for your group. So he would give a definite opinion. Hey, I think the fighters should do this. I think clerics should do this. I think thieves should do this. But if you're having fun, he would have never said it was bad, wrong fun. He just would have said how... if. if if you asked him what clerics and and fighters and everybody should be doing, he had a definite opinion. And if you agreed with that opinion, then he gave you the rating system as the DM. So essentially I'm agreeing with you. Uh, It it really is what the group wants. Anyway, great podcast. Uh, Enjoyed listening to it. Have a good one.
1: Wow. Thank you so much for that call. Great, great stuff. I really like how you explain the thieving skills. That makes a ton of sense. And... That's definitely the way I'm going to play it here in the future. It just goes to show, much like the pummeling rules and some of these other things, AD&D is a system that's best learned from people that know how to play it so they can make sure that, or not make sure, but they can pass on the knowledge of reading these rules the right way and catching the nuances. And that's why things like the Classic Adventure Gaming Podcast, that's like these old school forums like Knights and Knaves and OD&D and 74 are so important because you can find people that have been playing for years and years and years and years and, years and can pass on that knowledge, much like Palladium. Palladium's, the Palladium games are ones that, yeah, people complain the rules aren't bad, but the problem is they're not organized well. And it's much easier to learn Palladium from somebody that already knows how to play it as opposed to teaching it to yourself. So thank you again for that call. Really, really appreciate it. Call back anytime. Okay, we're going to have one last call before we get deep into the Rule Cool discussion, or at least the calls for Rule Cool. It's not a whole lot of discussion. It's more people talking about that idea. And this call is from Anthony, also known as RuneSlinger, from Casting Shadows. Take it away, Anthony.
2: Hey, Jason, it's Anthony calling in from the road. And if I'm casting any shadows... They're behind me because I'm driving into the sun. I can't see, so bear with me. I just finished listening to your epic second parter, part two, for the Rule Cyclopedia with two special guests. Double the value. I thought it was pretty amazing, and uh, once again heightened my feeling that had I been exposed to the Rule Cyclopedia when I was still playing D and D that I probably would have liked it a lot, certainly having access to everything all in one place for it to be seen and discussed and evaluated and used and referenced at the table and all that stuff. It would have been a great boon. Oh well. I also really enjoyed the tangents and the whole structure of uh, responding to to the calls that Daniel made, but that weren't shared. (laughs) It It was pretty cool. So I liked uh, the interaction between the three of you. So uh, I found it to be a very good use of my time. And it covered uh, a whole leg of my commute on that day. So thanks
1: again. Take care. Thank you for the kind words. Anthony has the Casting Shadows podcast and blog in the RuneSlinger YouTube channel. Check all those out. He wasn't the only one to listen to the show, though. So did M.W. Lewis over at the World's M.W. Lewis podcast. And M.W. has some thoughts, particularly about the rule cool. And I'm just going to let the rest of these calls play out. M.W. called in. I reached out to Eric and Daniel. Eric has the Omega 3D Chicken Coop podcast, who was on with Daniel and I talking about the rule psychopedia. Daniel sent a response in. Eric didn't have anything to add. And then I've also got responses from Carl of The Geomologist Presents and Joe of Hindsightless. Joe was cited by Minion in that earlier call. I had sent these calls out to a couple people. If I didn't send the call out for you to comment on, it's not because I didn't think about you or didn't wasn't interested in your opinion, but because I wanted to try to keep this show to about an hour. <laughs> and after Carl and joe and daniel's calls i was right there and now i've added that extra bit in the front about jake a dungeon so we're, we're already at time if you have thoughts on rule of cool please call them in this doesn't have to be the end of this discussion we can keep discussing it but these calls are going to play the episode out so i want to thank all my callers i want to thank you the listener i want to thank tj for the wonderful music ray otis for the coffee cup clip art And as always, be excellent to each other. Now I'm going to turn it over to MW, Daniel, Carl, and Joe to talk about the rule of cool. Hey,
3: Jason, I'm finally getting a chance to call in. I listened to your Beck me uh, or your rules cyclopedia extravaganza over the weekend. And I think I finished it on Monday Uh, and I wanted to call in because Ah, uh, you and Daniel and Eric, uh, and you were you were particularly quiet in that whole thing, well, which was surprising. There was there was whole s- segments, ten minute swaths where it was just Eric and Daniel going, and you were you were uh, just patiently listening, and and that's good. That's good. Uh, I like that. You know, the the patience there uh, to let the let those two hijack your show for long periods of time. But it was so enlightening because. I got the sense that I'm I'm not a I'm not a rule of cool kind of DM. You know, I'm a roar of a rules guy and let's roll for it kind of guy. I don't know. Maybe a lot of old school DMs are like that, too. I find when I listen to the, the emperors on the Grog talk that they're a big believer in always a chance of something going wrong. Let's make a roll. Like, at the minimum, there's always this 5% chance. I get the sense that Daniel's kind of like that, too. But certainly... uh being prompted by a lot of what Eric was saying. Um, Daniel, I was getting the idea that Daniel, he's definitely open to players trying new things and doing new things and being creative, and and I I, I like to think I am too, but uh, uh, you know, it's hard to know if I really am because I only can go off of what my players do in games, and I, I find my players are much more strategic in their thinking more like, they're more like battle prep kind of strategic thinkers. When, like, they much rather spend a lot of time gathering information about a potential encounter and, and then maybe come up with a strategy versus what I, I kind of feel like the best strategy in D&D is just go have the encounter and be creative in the battle. like. Tell the DM you're going to form a certain formation or, you know, get them to a point where you can create a bottleneck or some of these rule of cool ideas. I'm going to grab a chandelier and swing across the room and kick the magic user in the back row because like, I like that kind I do think I like that kind of stuff. I just think I find with people I play with that doesn't come up a lot. There's not a lot of like tactical, battle planning or tactical thinking during the course of a battle. It's more of, I'm gonna pull my sword and shield and fight, or I'm gonna do this weapon, or I'm gonna do these spells. But, But boy, there's a lot of time spent figuring out how to get into the encounter, like wanting to know exactly what's there, or how exactly what the numbers are. Uh, But I I like it when I play with... I I think I like what I was hearing from those two. And I like, and for that very reason, I liked the discussion of the Masters' uh, weapon, uh, advanced weapon skills. I kind of think that adds something for the fighter to be a little more tactical in in a battle scenario. Maybe they could draw on some of those skills. Instead of feeling like all their their only choice is really just to attack and roll dice, like so. In other words, if the player isn't willing or able to say, well, what else is in the room? I, I want to grab onto the chandelier. I want to knock the table over and create uh, 50% um, cover because I know if I'm 50% covered, I get a better armor class. Or you know, uh, and again, those those rules aren't in the player's handbook. So the fact that the cover rules aren't even in, addressed in the player's handbook. That could lead players to feel like their tactics are extremely limited. Uh, they don't ever think to grapple, pummel, or overbear because, again, the rules aren't in the player's handbook. So uh, I, I like this idea of these master skills. And I've been meaning to update my, my uh, homebrew document that uh, I've really eliminated most of my homebrew rules, except for some hit point rules, for my Monday night game. But I, I do go through and I just pasted in uh, things from the players' handbook that the players really should think about and things from the DMG and I want to add like the grappling uh, explanations, not necessarily the specific rules on how to deal to, to figure it all out, but at least paste the explanations in. So hopefully my players look at that document once in a while and they could say, yeah, you know I could I don't always have to fight with my weapon, but if I add these master skills or at least some of them, uh, I hope the players say, yeah, I could do that too. I could try to make a, a you know, a lower level character run away in fear. If I have a, if I do a, a, a sword twirling or something like that, whatever that skill is. Or the fact you could use your sword to uh, increase your armor class. And get, I like the idea, Get the tra- I'm big on the training anyway. I'm big on the characters spending their time and ticking the time off. Uh, in the game time, that they spent time getting trained. I always used to do that. You know, I heard, I think Eric was saying he never encountered or experienced, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, the idea that the DM would say, oh, your party has returned after two months and you guys went off and went training, well, I don't know, when I DM'd as 13-year-old, we did do that, that we were doing that. We we read the rules and it said there had to be this time spent on training. Well, we, we weren't going to role-play out two weeks of training or a week of training. That just seemed kind of ridiculous. So we would just say, oh, the party broke up, you know, Merlin went to the Magic Tower and, and Bollemere went to the fighter school and um, St. Anthony went to the church and you guys got your training and you came back and you're... Uh, you're back together now. So, uh, and that we would just do these quick little segues. So I've always, that's always been sort of how I do it in my games. And, but I like this idea that the fighter, now I would limit these master weapon rules. I, I, from what I understand of your conversation, that these weapon rules can apply to any character who can use the martial weapons. Well, heck I'm a big AD and D guy. And I, I like the idea that each class has something unique about them. And we all know the fighter has the least, Unique aspect, so I would say this is just for the fighter, not even for the ranger or the paladin. Only the fighter could gain these special skills, these master skills. But of course, I'm also big on I gotta talk to my players first. My players may say, you know, BS, this is stupid, this isn't ADD, we don't want it. And I'd say, you know what, that's fine. But I do, I do like to give the players more uh you know the combats can be boring you hear it a lot throughout the podosphere that uh, people just dread the combats and rolling dice they don't think it's that fun I-, I don't agree even boring combat where my players are just doing standard stuff i love it i mean i love the dice rolling i, I just did random encounter the other night with uh someone in the grog empire sunny and and uh, it's a- i think the rolling the dice is fun you know you never know what's going to happen in a battle and uh I like it so, but but when players can make it more interesting, or if, you know, I can do things to help make it more interesting, I'm all about it. And these master rules, I like not because I feel like they create overpowered characters; or it gives the the players an advantage. I, I don't look for that. I don't I don't look for things to unbalance the game. I do do a couple things that might unbalance the game, like I let the magic user have more spells based on his intelligence his or her intelligence and I do it more because as adults we don't we just don't meet as much anymore and and uh I don't I don't really feel it, it doesn't unbalance the game too much in my opinion the players don't have a problem with it none of them disagree with it and uh it, it's more of a no one wants to you know work hard all day and then sit on a D&D session for 4 or 5 hours on a Monday night and have one thing they can do i mean like you know, I don't know really what Gary's experience was playing this game way back in the sixties and seventies, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't know who felt that was fun back then, and. Eh-heh. I'm a softie. You know, we are supposed to be having fun. I mean, at the the heart of the matter, if you're not having fun, why are you doing this? I mean, there's other things you could be doing on a Monday night or a Saturday morning or a Friday night than playing D&D. Everyone should be having some fun. Let the magic user have a couple extra spells. Let the fighter have a few cool skills. Like, we have a fighter in my Monday night game who's decided to use a spedum because he wants the disarm tactic. And I love it. I mean, and so we decided to add uh, UA specialization rules, which, uh, you know, that starts to get into um, imbalancing in the game a little bit. So what we did, it's only for fighters and fighter type, uh, I think fighter, only the fighters. Um, or maybe the fighter types can specialize. Uh, maybe we even said the clerics can specialize. I forget now, but we might allow it for the clerics and the fighters maybe no no i think it's just the fighters so anyway that's not the point the point is he's specialized in this spedum so he has this little procedure he likes to do and on the round he gets his two attacks he likes to disarm first and then attack for damage and then in the next round he he just attacks and it, it, it's adding a little element that he's enjoying it whether or not the rest of the players care it doesn't matter he's enjoying it and uh, then I think about these master skills, and I'm like, well, this guy, he would probably love that. He would probably love the sw- s- sword thing where he intimidates someone and they run off, or being able to get some extra training from a sword master to increase his armor class, you know, or his spedum master, whatever. Uh, and now, you know, anyway, this is already a long call, but I loved it. I love that stuff. The rule of cool. Like I don't want the rule of cool to completely imbalance a D and D. I am not, I don't think I'm a rule of cool DM, but really when you listen to Eric and Dan and that, that long, uh, episode the other day over the weekend, there are some, you know, you gotta have some cool in your game. You do have, if your game's not cool, if cool things aren't happening, then why are the players playing it, right? You want them to be, you do want them to be cool. So I hope you know when you you know, if, uh, you, know you offer these tools to the group and they agree to uh, agree to, yeah, let's incorporate it into our game. I hope they use it too. That would be cool because I want I like cool. Anyway, Jason, your your podcast is cool. That's why I listen to it. So uh, have a good day.
4: Hey Jason, Daniel calling in well, not really calling again. responding, because <laughs> you sent me the, uh, the awesome message from MW. Yeah, there's not much I can say except I agree. <laughs> I definitely like to give the players the free will, if you will, to try stuff, and, and I like when they do it. And it, as a player, I really like it. I'm often trying things. Uh, <laughs> I'm that guy that when it gets to my turn, I don't usually say, Oh, I roll the dice, I say, okay, this is what I want to do, you know? Um, That being said, I think he makes some really good points about including a system that has, for lack of a better word, moves. Because, right, what if the players don't realize that they're able to do that, right? We can't just assume that everybody decides to swing from chandeliers, right? Some people might just think that's not possible because there's not a rule for it, or they might think that it might be just bad Like, it might just be a terrible thing to do, like, mechanically, that is. And if you look at a game—and again, this is not a criticism to it— but if you look at a game like 5e, their rules for improvised weapons, unless you have the feet for it, are pretty terrible. So there's almost never a reason to pick up, let's say, a table leg, right, and use it as a weapon, even though that would be awesome in 5e. So I know at my table, people really didn't do that. Yet, if you look at a game where, let's say, every weapon does the same damage and there's no proficiencies, everybody can just use whatever, a hateful place, I do find players do all kinds of neat stuff, right? So, I wonder, right, part of it is having rules may hamper because people feel like if it's not in the rules, they can't do it, right? But not having rules or not having a list of abilities can hamper because people might not think it's possible because that's the two ways to look at it, right? There's there's kind of two people. There's two kinds of people. You know, there's the, if it's not in the rules, I can't do it. And there's the, if it's not in the rules, I can try it, people. I guess my solution to that, or what I generally do, it falls back to just how I GM, is that when somebody wants to do something outside the, you know, the area of a normal move, I will always be 100% clear exactly how I'm going to adjudicate it. And I will listen to them if they have some comment as they think it should be adjudicated a different way. If they tell me, oh, like I had one player that insisted she was new to D&D and she loved the 10-foot pole. She used it for everything. And she had weapons, but she'd always want to hit people with the 10-foot pole. And I would say, well, what what is it you're trying to do with this? You know, what is your – and then once she would tell me, I'd say, okay, well, this is what uh, – this is what we're gonna have to roll in order for that to happen, right? Because she imagined having never played any game before, she was not really a video gamer, never played any RPGs. She just imagined she could do anything. And she had this 10 foot pole that really grabbed her imagination because she thought it was silly and used it for everything, pole vaulting, pushing things, using it as a weapon, tripping people. And it's just amazing, right? I think that we as players sometimes, well, here's another example without going too long. I love DCC. I know you like DCC, uh, Jason. The Fighter's Mighty Move. i I That's not the name of it I know, but Mighty Deed. I've played with plenty of people who I have to keep reminding them that they can do a Mighty Deed with every single time. You can always do it. And I've had players be like, no, I just want to hit them. (laughs) You know? So some people just don't want to do those moves. And if it's too open-ended like the Mighty Deed, maybe some players can't think of anything, we'll say, imaginative to, to do in that moment. Whereas if they had a special... Uh, Ability like MW talks about, like a disarm ability, then they know, I have this disarm ability, I can use it. So there's definitely, I don't know if the word argument is correct, but there's definitely thoughts on both sides of that. And there's really no perfect solution, right? It comes down to different players like different things, and maybe different systems accommodate those other things better than others. But if you have a player who wants to do all kinds of special moves, you, I, my personal thought is you definitely want to let them do it. I think I may have even said that during the podcast, uh, you know, where that's the downside to me of some of these like very specialized moves is that I feel like once you say there's a disarm move that you have to specialize to use and only fighters can do it, then nobody will do it. Except the fighter that specializes that has that move, which means that you're somewhat limited in my mind. Not 100%, but I also get the argument the other way, whereas if you don't have the moves, nobody will think to do it. Now, another place, I, a place actually that I think does it really well is Hyperborea. In Hyperborea, there are advanced battle maneuvers. They're in like the, the further back part of the book, like they're an op- I think they're optional, but like there they are. Some of them are certain classes only. Some of them are certain abilities only, ability scores only. But for the most part, you can, everybody looks at this list. It's not like in, in a class, right? It's not in the fighter description. It's in the combat description. So anybody can look at it and go, oh, I'm proficient with the bow, I can set arrows, let's assume that's something everybody can do, I can't remember now, you know, and get an extra bow shot per round if I take the time to do it and I'm in a position to do it. You know, so I think that having some advanced combat rules, let's call them, is definitely a good idea. I'm not sure the perfect mechanism to serve those rules to the players to get them to do more stuff is, though. So, anyways... Great message from MW, thanks for calling in, and uh, thanks for sharing it with me, Jason, so I could reply. I'll talk to you soon.
7: Ah, the rule of cool. I think when it comes to the rule of cool, I see it as a vehicle for storytelling. And I like it when, I mean, it's always great when the dice go your way, but sometimes even when they don't, it can still be cool in a funny sort of way but I definitely have some great rule of cools. And I guess that kind of comes with the philosophy of being a yes. And GM, if, if the Claire character makes the role that can work in that situation, then, uh, it happens and it's freaking cool. I think the coolest example in recent memory, I've had many rules of cool, um, from a one-armed paladin leaping over a fiery chasm to strike down a demon way back in AD&D. Um, I think we used, I don't know, we didn't really use like a, an ability score roll. I just said, man, you got to make a, what did I make him do? I made him make like, I think an ability roll. And he had to get like so much under and he rolled a one. So it was a spectacular leap, something like that. I thought that was really cool, but the dice had to dictate it, you know? I mean, the, I think the rule of cool applies that the player has this proposal that he wants to do something, but if it's a difficult maneuver, yes, you can try it, and hopefully the dice are with you, and then it's really freaking cool. Um, I think the latest one, that was an old one, but the latest one was um, they were chasing this mage or this, they're chasing this chaos sorcerer, the uh, group in my Warhammer fantasy game. And one of the player characters had actually, he's powerful enough that he turned into a demigriff. Okay. So like a, basically like a Hippogriff, Griffin in the verse and he, he swooped the, the mage, like with this cart. I mean, it was a whole great scene. The mage had struck like his um, magical staff on through the, the, the causeway and it was breaking up and players were, we're trying to save each other and leap, t- taking their horse and challenging their horse to take the leap, you know, over the forming chasm on the causeway. And the demigriff guy, seeing the sorcerer, you know, teetering off the edge in his in his uh, battle wagon, crashed into him, you know, like it crashed his demigriff into them and they went toppling down into, into the ravine. And we had like a really cool aerial battle and... You know, um, I I think what it is is let the players be very creative and then let the dice decide whether their creativity pays off and hopefully it's not a dud, right?
8: Okay, so I'm calling in about the rule of cool and how I feel about it. So for me, who runs mostly Pathfinder, which has basically (laughs) a, a lot of rules for a lot of different situations... I know that it can't cover everything. So if a player wants to try something that isn't covered by the rules, they can go for it. But there is still a chance of failure. That To me, that's the rule of cool, is saying, that's a cool idea, even though it's not covered by the rules, you can totally do that. And I know that's different from you know, the idea of you can do anything you want as long as it's not prohibited directly by the rules. Um, but yeah, I, I I I don't think it's an automatic success or anything. It's just if somebody wants to do something, like, for instance, some of the stuff that Randor does, like jumping off walls to grab flying characters and stuff, your character in Wrath of the Righteous, I rule of cool that. There aren't strict rules for how that would actually work. Uh, so I just said, yeah, let's, let's, let's try it out. Give me, you know, give me an acrobatics check, give me a climb check, whatever. And we make it work from there. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. So for me, that's the rule of cool. It's about doing cool stuff, but there is still a chance of failure. So yeah, man, there you go. I hope that works. Take it easy and peace out.
5: And remember folks, if you sent a call into Jason and you haven't heard it on this episode, have no fear. It will appear.
2: do your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? In the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I could see him dead. Bring on the go, bring on the go. That's my name, by the zipper, and I'm assuming that's your partner back there in the woods, chipper. Don't look away, don't look away, don't look away, don't look away. Well, the zombies are arising, and the world has gone to hell. We're living for the dying, and we're dying for
5: the train wreck.